All right, guys. Welcome to the table. So glad to have you with me. You're going to have a little bit of grace for me tonight. I'm going to use these rocks to help with the wind because it is crazy up here. Um, but if I haven't met you yet, um, my name is Alex Sheets, and I am just, I'm so glad to be with you. Um, so glad to open up God's Word. Uh, tonight we've got an We've got a fascinating conversation, one that we don't get to have uh, very often. We're actually going to be asking three questions. Um, the first one is, what is heaven like? What will I, what will we be like? And finally, um, whatever it is, should I want it? Now that last one is kind of an interesting one. There's like an obvious, like, uh, maybe like a duh, but... I want to talk about that for a little bit. Um, immortality is a, a fascination um, in our culture, okay? Like, uh, think of the Fountain of Youth. You guys have read Tuck Everlasting. I assume it was required reading uh, back in my day, maybe third grade. There was a frog, I think. Um, it's a fascination. Indiana Jones, uh, the cup, Okay. Um, there's even people freezing their bodies and freezing their heads so that one day they can have, like, be a computer cyborg so they can live forever. Immortality is a fascination in our life. But I have a question for you. If you could have immortality right now, like if I had that, that cup, that Indiana Jones cup right now, would you take it? Is it a blessing or a curse? Talk about that for yourselves, amongst yourselves, for about two minutes. Is that a good thing or a bad thing right now? Go ahead and talk. No. Obviously no. Think why. Got to think why. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Thirty more seconds. Thirty more seconds. Okay, okay. now for one of my, my funnest and honestly most scary parts of the night because I have no idea what you guys will answer. Um, immortality, good thing, bad thing. I mean, like literally, it's immortality. Would, who have you said, dude, it's immortality. I, I want it. Raise your hand. Yes, now we have one guy. Okay, oh, we have two. Okay, okay, two people. Okay, so I'm assuming those that said no, raise your hand. Okay, 
just I want to hear a couple thoughts. I did not expect all of you to say no, so I must be missing something. But go ahead, let me hear some hear some reasons. Who who wants uh, over there? So live Christ to die in your grave. Oh, oh, hey, whoa, he, let's get him up here. Let's get him up here. <laughs> okay, okay. I was much more shallow in my answers. Uh, okay, another reason right there. Okay, this is scary. <laughs> All right. She said, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He started preaching. The other one said, you're alive when the planet dies. Okay. By the way, can everyone hear me in the back? Okay, good. Um, one, last one right here. Everyone you know and love dies. Okay, yeah. That's a little scary too. That's a little scary too. Um, maybe I should shift it and say if, if they were immortal too, but... I'll think about that next time. A blessing or a curse. I want to tell you a Greek myth. A story that the ancients told when it came to this idea. It's called the myth of Tithonus and Eos, the dawn and her lover. See, the dawn, she loved a mortal man. And the problem with an immortal being and loving a human being is that she will live forever like you were saying, and he will not. But she went to the other gods and she said, could I bestow, could you bestow on Tithonus um, immortality? And they said, yes, easy, done. So it's a good story. But in this divine, I guess, joke, she forgot to ask for uh, eternal youth with eternal immortality. And so he, Tithonus, Uh, grew old and became a senile old man and could never die. And so her love actually turned out to be a a really bad thing. It's like, thanks, thanks, lover. (laughs) Well, it didn't didn't work out very well. It didn't work out very well for him. Uh, There's several tellings of this story. Uh, It's it's beautiful in its tragedy. Uh, One is Tithonus eventually turned into a cicada. And every morning when you heard the cicadas chirping at the dawn, it was to show how their love could never be, that he could never die, but they could never truly be together. And that myth tells you two things that the ancients believed. One is that true love can't truly be forever. At least in this sense, not between divinity and humanity. Another that it tells us is how stupid are human beings to yearn for eternal life? How dumb are they to yearn for that which is not there? They're mortal. Now I want to ask another question for you to talk about it for for 30 seconds. If the authors of Scripture, or even Jesus, were to answer that same question, what would they say? Think about that. Talk about that for 30 seconds. Go. Okay, 
Okay. Now, I don't know what you said. I don't know what you said. But I believe the answer would be a resounding no. Human beings should not desire eternal life right now. To put it positively, immortality and even heaven is not somewhere that you would want to go right now. And to put it positively, the Apostle Paul will say tonight, you have no idea what you are missing out on in the resurrected life. And to put it negatively, we have a complete and utter need for this idea called glorification, which is what we will speak on more in the second half. That is what is in store for us tonight. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Starting in verse 35. This idea of glorification. And as you're turning there, I just want to go ahead and set the stage for, the, for those of you that are joining us or that it's been a little bit. Uh, this is our third sermon on the resurrected life. Um, this is the third section um, that Paul is going on in uh, the resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just goes off on the resurrection. It is so key in his understanding. The first part, we talked about how the resurrection is a reality. It is either a yes or a no. It happened or it didn't happen. And we believe, as Paul believed, as he was eyewitnesses, that it did. And it changed everything. And that was the second sermon. The implications of the resurrected life. And tonight will be our complete victory in Him. And it tonight begins with a question that we're going to be asking ourselves too. Um, how are the dead raised? What, kind, what will we be like? What kind of body will we have? Um, but their question's a little dishonest. We're asking it honestly. They're asking it a little dishonestly because they had um, a little gap between what they believed God could do and what... They believed was right, and we will talk about that. So verse 35, I'm just going to go off the text because I am just too scared of what will happen if I try and do too much tonight. So verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, that's key in our understanding, body, physical body, will they have when they come? Verse 36, I love this, you fool. It's so, so direct, so blunt that Paul just goes talking. He's like, you fool. Like, it echoes back to the psalm. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They've forgotten what God could do. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives a body as He wants. Each to, to each seeds its own body. He begins with one analogy. He's actually going to give two analogies, and he's going to keep going with an argument, answering that one question. What kind of body will they have? The first is the analogy of the seed. Um, the seed, it gives this idea of the body. There's a body sown and a body raised. And there is this continuity between the two. And it's such a beautiful, simple idea. Like, he like, points us to like an acorn. An acorn 
is planted in the earth and it becomes a tree. And it never ceases to be the same organism. That tree had the same DNA as the seed that went into the ground. It is the same being. It is the same person. But you would never expect that seed to become something so different than what became. You would never look at a seed and say, that is what it's going to become. But there is continuity between what is sown in the ground, us as we go into the earth, and what will come up in the resurrected body. That is the analogy of the seed. And then he goes on to the analogy of, I guess I'll just call it ecosystems. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, birds, and fish. There are heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars. There are earthly bodies, everything you see here. But the splendor of the bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, moon, stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor, in brightness. And this is the analogy of ecosystems. Different ecosystems fit their Different bodies fit their ecosystems. You wouldn't expect a fish to fly. You wouldn't expect a bird to breathe underwater. In the same way, their glory matches where they are. As we have need for an earthly body and an earthly ecosystem, Paul is saying, so you need a heavenly body and a heavenly ecosystem. And here's some things that you can draw from this. You need to stop thinking of yourself as like a soul or a body only. Paul's fighting against that idea of like, I'm a spiritual being and a physical person. He's like, your spirituality and your physicality, they come together in one. It's like, it's like two tiers of a house. There's, there's the spiritual, and there's the uh, ground floor basement that is physical, but it is a part of the same house. And when you die... The spiritual will depart for a little bit, but only for a little bit, and it will come back together in fullness, and it will be a physical, resurrected body. You and your body are one. That is the analogy of the ecosystem. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. We are sown in corruption, and we are raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, Raised in glory, sown, buried, in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body, i.e. glorification. If there was a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. What's his proof? What's he going to show them? He's going to show them that he's saying the truth. Jesus Christ, verse 45, so it is written, the first man to ever live, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 46, however, the spiritual was not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. When did this happen? When did the spiritual, when did the physical become a spiritual being? At Jesus' physical resurrection. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of heaven. 
You see, the previous, the previous metaphor, the previous analogy, talked about continuity. One seed goes in the ground, and you're, the same comes out. And now he moves on to say that there is some kind of glorious discontinuity between the two. It's the same being, but what you can expect is radically different. The reality of the glorification is the key to the earlier dilemma. You sow a seed and you could never, ever expect a tree to come out. When we go in, what will come out will be radically different, and what we, we will be like is whatever Jesus is. As Jesus is, so we will be. That is Paul's argument. Verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. He, as it says in verse 20, is the first fruits of the harvest. He became a man so that when He died and rose again, we will follow Him. And whatever His glory looks like in heaven right now, we will share in that. It's a glorious discontinuity between what we are right now. And then He moves into our victory. Verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood, idiom for mortality cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with, immortal- with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? It's beautiful. And it's even more beautiful when you see that that's a prophecy about us. That prophecy, when you see those must and then, is fulfilled when we fulfill them through what Jesus Christ is doing in us. Verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends on this practical note. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I love Him and is in vain. It is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus has raised from the dead, and He will raise us from the dead likewise in a victorious resurrection. See, Paul has argued with them that what Jesus will be, what Jesus is, we will be just like Him. As He is now, so we will be. And I think He did a really good job. I think He did a really good job arguing for that point. He argued against their false views about what heaven is like, what the resurrection will be like. And I 
want to just spend some time talking about what some of our views of heaven are and maybe addressing some false views that we have. See, you see, we have views of heaven that, that actually don't necessarily come from Scripture. And I just want to spend some time talking with you about that. But before I get into those, I think our biggest problem with the idea of heaven is not false views. Okay? I think when it comes to heaven, we just kind of think it's boring. You know? Like, if we can just be honest for a second, we just kind of think heaven is kind of dull. You know, it's a, it's a nice idea, quaint, but like, harps? Like, what? I didn't really like band practice at the beginning, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, are we just going to sit on clouds? Like, eternity is a really long time. You know, is it, are we going to get bored there? Maybe that's a scary thought for you. Eternity is a scary thought. I understand. Uh, some of, I've heard this before. Um, all the fun stuff is here. So yeah, get out, get the fun stuff out of the way now. Because heaven's coming. Oh, yeah. oh gosh. I can see why. Some people would not want to go to heaven. That sounds like a rather dull place. But I can say this. If that's you, if that's us, that is not the proper understanding. If that's you, you have no understanding of what the Bible says heaven will be like. And we could spend so much time, so much time talking through specifics. I would love to. Just spend some time. Drew and Scott would love to. But just for the sake of time, here are just three points that are rather big ones of what heaven will be like. Biblically, heaven is then, like duh, like duh, and now. Like heaven and the resurrection have already begun. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, God, pay attention to these verbs, God made you alive and raised you, uh, us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Those verbs are past tense. The resurrection has, in a sense, already happened. It has already happened in Jesus Christ. You already have been made alive in Christ right now. Like, what is that baptism business about? When it says you died with Him and you are raised with Him, the church is the eschatological, the kingdom of God right now. It's a window into heaven. And if it is not boring here, as you walk with God, as you walk in love, and as you walk in the community of each other, brothers and sisters, I promise you, when perfection comes, it will not be boring then. But if that is true, if the resurrection has already begun, then what that means is that if you say you're alive, my brother and sister, you've got to start living. You've got to start living like it. 
The resurrection has happened. You are alive in Jesus. So live like it. Like a jumper cable to a dead battery, so is the Holy Spirit to our very soul. It can't help but come alive. The resurrection is then in fulfillment, and it is now. Number two, heaven is relational. It's all about relations. The people of God will be together at last. The bride will be with the bridegroom, his church. Verse 21, Revelation 21.3 says this, Look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be their God forever. God with man and man with each other forever. With no hindrances. Your friendships, your relationships, there's nothing to hinder you. No emotional baggage, no brokenness inside of you and inside of each other. You can love and be loved perfectly with perfect relationships. Relationships are the currency of heaven. And what that means is that the relationships you are building now carry eternal significance. The relationships you have now will carry on into the kingdom of God. These friendships you have are not meaningless. They're heavenly. They're divine. As you are loving God and loving people, they're eternal. As C.S. Lewis says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors and everlasting splendors based on what they do with the reality of Jesus Christ if they choose Him or if they choose themselves. Love carries on into eternity. Heaven is all about relationships. And finally, heaven is life restored. And that's simply to ask this question, like, like, what will I do? Like, seriously, what will I do? Yeah, come on, like, what will I do? Will I sit on a cloud? Like, to answer that question, you have to ask, what were mankind made to be doing at the beginning? What, before the fall, before brokenness entered, and we were separated from mankind and each other, what were we always made to be doing? Here's things you can think of. We were made to work with joy in it. We were made to create. We were made to have relationships. But no marriage. That's fun. Matthew 25, Matthew 24, go look that up. Okay? Hashtag single forever. (laughs) You think about that. Think about that. (laughs) Gardening was there. If you're into that. (laughs) Art. The Lord is an artist. Exploration. It'll all be there and you can do it eternally. There's nothing hindering you. That was what mankind was made. And it was all before the time. It was all before the fall. And some of them were even pastimes of God Himself. They are found in Him. And yes, we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So maybe you should buy a harp. I don't know. Revelation 5. 
Only this time. It's not a restoration of what will be. It's not like this equals that. This time, we will be with the Lord face to face. And we will be made perfect, just like Him. It's so much more glorious than whatever could be. That is heaven. And as Jesus is now, so we shall be. But, I still believe what I said earlier. Heaven is not somewhere that you would want to go right now. Why? We'll talk about that in the second half. There's my pitch. Okay. Heaven is not somewhere that you would want to go to right now. And I have three reasons why you should not want to go from a Christian perspective. I mean, obviously, we can, we can hear all kinds of reasons from a non-Christian perspective. There's all kinds of stories, uh, uh, fun, fun ways. But these are all from a, a Christian perspective. Three reasons why you should not want to go. The first one has a little bit of an asterisk by it, but I'm not going to apologize. Um, the first one, you are simply not ready for it yet. You're not. If you went to heaven right now, it would not be a good thing for you at this current state. Let me walk you back through the idea of salvation that we talk about so much here that happens in the gospel. You see, the power of sin is defeated, but not the presence. We still have sin in our lives. There's this thing called justification, that when you enter into Christ, you are viewed as righteous before the Father right now. He doesn't see you, He sees Jesus, and that's beautiful. So you don't have to work for it. He sees Jesus Christ, His only and perfect Son, right now. And then there's this idea called sanctification that's happening right now. It's you being conformed to the image of God. We know that you are not actually the, the, the glory and standard of Christ, but you are growing. You are being conformed to the image of Christ as you seek to do His will and submit and repent through this life. That's why it's a battle and a struggle, a sanctification. And then there is glorification, which is what Paul goes through pains talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. When you die, you will be sown in dishonor but raised in power. And that wherever you are on the spectrum of sanctification, Jesus will finish that work in you that He and you are both doing now. That's the yet part. And without glorification in 1 Corinthians 15, all of it falls apart. And you shouldn't want eternal life. You shouldn't want immortality without it. Why? Here's three. You are not whole yourself. You would still be broken forever. And I don't feel like I need to prove this to you. I feel like all of us know what it's like to be broken to not be right mentally, physically, emotionally. Like we, we know what brokenness is. But to experience that forever, that would be a curse. Like the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, those, those like, immortality forever without 
life in itself ends up being not as good as we thought. It's a curse. It's a curse. Without wholeness. You are not real enough for heaven. Interesting thought. If this place is shadows and heaven is the true reality that we all come from, then we are vapors in light of what heaven is. If heaven and God are lights and this is shadows, then we can't interact fully with what heaven is supposed to be like. We don't have life and substance in ourselves yet. It's an interesting thought. We typically think of heaven the opposite way. And that's that mystery out there. But this, this is real. The physical is real. Right now is real. But it's the opposite. If God is the reality that's holding all things together and we only have 70 years maybe here, then we should reverse that. Heaven is the reality and we are not real enough to go yet. And this is shadows but that heaven sends on us. And finally, and most importantly, you could never look your father in the eye. Sin remains. Seeing the Lord face to face, that is what we were made for. But seeing the Lord face to face, His glory is a bad thing for us because we aren't able to handle it. Like a feather, too close to a flame, we would be incinerated. That is the story of the Old Testament. His glory is too much without His glorification in us. But, verse 49, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Or Philippians 3.21, He will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like His glorious body. And we will be made whole. A life without sin and brokenness, fear, anxiety, self-hatred. You see, we love beauty outside. We love the mountains. We love the sunrise. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the flowers. Could you consider for a moment perfection inside? Could you consider what that would be like to have perfect contentment and peace within you. Delight. A life where you don't need others to fill you. That is glorification. And at that moment, we would cast all our, our anxieties, all our yearnings, all our things we need to fill us, all our pills into the sea. Because we have all it takes to sustain us. And it is because a deeper, uninhibited fellowship with God, that is glorification. And that is why you should not want to go to heaven yet, right now, at this state. Reason number two, and this is a rather simple one that most people don't realize, and so this is just fun for me to tell you. Reason number two, why you should not want to go to heaven because heaven is coming to you. I don't know if you know that, but heaven is not a far off, distant place. No, the King of heaven has already visited. And He has declared that the kingdom of God is within your midst. Revelation 21 ends with a new heavens 
and a new earth. They're coming down together to be one forever. So this idea of a lofty castle in the clouds, that is a hotel while the real building is being built. That's a waiting room. The reality is heaven and earth coming down to be one. This world, this body is your home. You were made for it, but both need to be redeemed. How does this change your thinking? That God has always been moving towards humanity. From the very beginning in grace and at the very end, establishing a new heaven and earth. (laughs) I did that in practice too. A new Kevin. There'll be new Kevins too. So do me a favor and save the spiritual mileage because heaven is coming here. Heaven is coming to you. And finally, and most importantly, why I believe you should not want to go to heaven or Kevin. You see, Americans, we think of heaven in the sense of ultimate wish fulfillment. We hear heaven and we hear all pleasure, no pain. We seek pleasure and we avoid, play, we avoid pain. And that's what, that's what the resurrection is. I want that forever. Why wouldn't I want that? It's paradise. I can tell you that. Like, it's not that it's not true. It's not that verses like God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But that misses, that completely misses the point. That makes the resurrection, the kingdom of God, all about me. The third point as to why you should not want to go to heaven is that heaven is not a place, it is a person. Christians, heaven is where the Lord Jesus is. John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Paradise is not a moment in the past, not a time in the future. It is a person and his proximity to him. Do not make heaven an idol. Do not make something that is a wish fulfillment that gets in the way of loving God. Yearn for him. Do not desire heaven for its glory. Desire the one who makes it glorious. That is why you should desire heaven. Because without Him, think about this, you have not experienced true joy. Your most cherished memory, the best time in your past, the time when you felt fully alive, pales in comparison to what it would be like when you are made fully alive in Him. That's what true joy is, to see the Lord face to face. It's in a person. How could you explain what the color red or blue is to someone who has never seen color before? In the same way, that it will be like to experience these things like love and joy and peace when you are with the one you were made. To be fully alive is to be with the Lord. 
It is a person, not a place. And also, He makes our pains, everything you've experienced, so, so very little. The worst that could happen. All the loss, all the loneliness, the deep, unmet desires in this world, Paul looks us squarely in the eyes and says, 2 Corinthians 4.17, they, all of them, are forming in you an eternal weight of glory. Everything that has happened to you is for your benefit because we fix our eyes on Him. He makes it all right. His glory turns it into our benefit. It's overshadowed by the glories to come. Heaven is a place and not... Sorry, heaven is a person and not a place. He says that in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and he says that in 1 Corinthians verse 55. He says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But if I can be honest, it still stings like hell. I know some of you are young and you haven't experienced death for the first time. But I know that you've experienced it in some ways. When your body doesn't work like it should, when it's not operating the way that we know is right, or when the relationships that you have when you actually experience death. It doesn't feel like victory. I remember the first time that I experienced death, the sting of death, was with my grandfather. I loved my grandfather. Three years ago, he passed away. He died. I was so close to him. He's the one that taught me to hunt. He's the one that taught me to drive at eight years old. I was with him my entire life. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. But I remember when he died three years ago. I remember being there in the hospital, holding his hand as he's slowly slipping away, praying that God would take his life because my loved one is facing the sting of death. It didn't feel like victory. The sting of death was still there. I remember being at the funeral, saying the eulogy, watching my family weep because they felt the sting of death too. And as they're weeping, all of them are weeping, I did not It is not because I was tough. It's not because I'm strong. And it's not because I'm spiritual. It's because He asked me to. In His words, He said this, AJ, was my name back then, when I pass, do not weep for me. I want you to go and I want you to celebrate. Do not weep. For I have gone to a better place. My life is over. And that was hard. And I have, and I fulfilled that promise, although it was really hard to celebrate. I don't think I fulfilled that. And as I was at that funeral, as I was reflecting on the promise that I made to my grandfather, 
those words cut deep. And they cut straight to the argument that Paul is making now. How? How could ever a funeral, how could ever a death be a celebration? How could the sting of death ever be removed? It's final. It's done. And the answer is only in Jesus Christ. Because He went first. He faced death for all of us. It is said that only in Christ is death swallowed up in victory. Only in a Christian funeral can death be a celebration, a sending off point. Only at a Christian grave can it be a garden springing on to something new, something more glorious. The Lord is the gardener of our own souls, turning us into something more. And that is what Christ has done. And as the church has always proclaimed, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb, bestowing life. So what should we do with that kind of knowledge? Two things. One, learn what it means to yearn for the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And Paul wrote that near his death, near the time when he was about to be laid in the ground and turned into something new, turned into something that was like Christ. And he says, Not only me, but also to those who have longed for His appearing. Brothers and sisters, learn what it means to yearn for Christ and His coming. And the second is this. Get to work. That's how Paul ends. With verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or, As Jesus says, May thy kingdom come, may thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would teach us to yearn for your coming again. I ask that you would fill their hearts with a desire to be with you and to know you in a deeper manner than they had when they came. But I know that they could walk with you right now. God, I pray that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation. I pray that your spirit would make them strong, and that they could experience that resurrected life right now. God, I love you, and I know you love them. I ask that you could help them enter into that love today. It is in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Amen.